This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Health Report podcast with me, Tegan Taylor. Coming up on the show, how social connections can help people offset a genetic predisposition to mental health issues, what effect might pandemic lockdowns and telehealth have on our stillbirth rate, and why treating stem cells like lazy teenagers could be the way to developing better therapies for Parkinson's disease and stroke damage. But first, RN is celebrating International Women's Day with an all-female lineup, and joining me is fellow woman and health reporter Lauren Roberts. Hi, Lauren. Hi, good afternoon. So online genetic tests can be pretty popular and usually reliable for things like tracing back your family tree. But what happens if you take your genetic information and put it into a third party website in an attempt to find out if you have a rare disease, rare disease causing abnormalities such as a mutated uh, BRCA1 gene, which uh, increases people's risk of breast cancer? Lauren, you've been looking into this. Is this something that Australians have been doing? Yes, it is. So researchers from the University of Exeter recently launched a large-scale study after learning of women scheduling surgery because they'd been told, wrongly, that they carry a fault in the BRCA1 gene. As we know, women who have a mutated BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene have a high lifetime risk of breast cancer in the range of 30 to 60% and a lifetime ovarian cancer risk of about 20%. These genetic variations are very rare, with roughly 1 in 400 people carrying a mutated BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene. Exeter researchers looked at data from nearly 50,000 people and they found SNP chips, technology widely used by commercial genetic testing companies, is extremely unreliable in detecting rare variants. SNP chips are DNA microarrays that test genetic variations at many hundreds of thousands of specific locations across the genome and used in research for genome-wide association studies. But these rays are not good at or designed for picking up very rare disease-causing variants. In fact, researchers found rare variants picked up by these rays are in fact more likely to be wrong than right. Snip chips sound like something I would like to snack on rather than uh, submit my DNA to. But So it sounds like it's got a use, but it's not being used correctly. Is it happening? What's the impact of that here in Australia? Well, none of the researchers that I spoke to have been surprised by the study's foundings. In fact, Paul Lacaz from Monash University said the technology used in these lower-cost direct-to-consumer online tests effectively scan the material, whereas proper medical-grade testing reads through it thoroughly. Critically, it misses the very rare genetic changes that can be highly clinically significant, such as the genetic changes that can occur in the BRCA1 and 2 genes. So that's Monash University Public Health Genomics Program head Paul Lacaz. So how do these these SNP chip tests compare to the sorts of testing that would be done in a typical lab in Australia to screen properly for um, BRCA1 and 2 genes? So in an Australian laboratory, uh, which is the gold standard for this kind of work, experts sequence all the points of the genes which have been implicated in these kinds of cancers and look at every single point in the gene for anything unusual. But these cheaper online direct-to-consumer genetic tests use a form of sampling where they just scan through the genes 
genome and don't read the entire thing from start to finish. Last year, Dr Lacaz actually worked on a study looking into the impact of direct-to-consumer genetic testing on Australian clinic genetical services. Researchers looked at Australian clinical services and asked them about the number of direct-to-consumer genetic testing-relating referrals. So that's people that have, have found out some what they would term troubling genetic information online and then brought them into a clinic that they'd received over the past 10 years. And they found 11 publicly funded services had reported more than 100 of them. And Dr. Lacaz said, although the raw figure wasn't massive, it's becoming an increasing problem as internet-based tools become more popular in Australia. So he says Australians have been getting misleading results online and taking them to their GP or clinics for further testing. And then the clinical lab will look at that and sometimes they'll try and validate the result in an accredited lab testing manner and more often than not won't be able to reproduce that finding. This is a trend that's happening more and more. Dr Lacaz says that he's actually advocating for there to be less restrictive criteria for genetic testing in Australia. He says that this will make high-quality testing more accessible for more people. And he's looking to launch a pilot study of about 10,000 adult volunteers in Australia offering preventive genetic screening. In Australia, genetic testing is offered through a family cancer clinic and people who have a family history and meet certain qualifications can get reimbursed testing. But for people who are simply curious about their genetic predisposition, who have no family history, there isn't a pathway through the public health system. Dr Lacaz estimates that approaching a private testing clinic for this kind of testing could cost about $1,200. He says that for people who don't have that kind of money, they're going to find other ways to satisfy their curiosity, which is why so many Australians are turning to the internet to find this information out for themselves. Right, so people are just curious and want to find this stuff out. If you're really concerned about your cancer risk, if you've got a family history of it, what should you do? Well, first and foremost, talk to your family doctor, talk to your GP and see what options are available for you. That's probably step one. But it's important to also make clear that Australians that have a family history of cancer can access the gold standard of genetic testing through a family cancer clinic. And the added benefit of that is as well is that they have genetic counsellors there who can offer ongoing support. But for people without a family history, it's just worth remembering that these genetic variants, such as the BRCA1 mutation, are just that. They're very rare. And we know online genetic testing is also very unreliable in testing for these kind of rare variants. So just don't be tempted to seek answers from these complex questions online because you're probably not going to find the right answer. Right. A complex question requires a complex solution, not something you can just get online. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks for having me. That's Lauren Roberts, my fellow health reporter from the ABC Science Unit, and she's written an online story about this as well, all about genetic testing. You can find it on the health tab at abc.net.au slash news. So almost all of us experience some kind of stress or trauma in our lives. So why does it trigger mental health issues in some people, but not in others? 
Some people do have genes that predispose them to mental illness. We were just talking about genetic testing. But our experiences play a part too. And in recent years, researchers have been exploring that relationship between mental health and epigenetics, which is how the genes we inherit are controlled and expressed. Divya Mehta is one of those researchers. She's been looking at how environmental health factors like social support and exercise influence our gene activity and therefore our mental health. Welcome, Divya. Thank you, Tegan, for having me today. So, Divya, if all of us are experiencing similar levels of trauma and stress across our lives, and of course there are some people who have much more trauma than others, but on the whole most of us have the same, what makes us respond so differently? Sure. So people respond differently to stress due to their individual biological, psychological and social risk and protective factors. In terms of biological factors, there is the underlying genetic vulnerability, so the DNA code that we inherit from our parents, as you mentioned, but there's also epigenetics. This are changes in gene activity due to environmental and lifestyle factors. So it's really a combination of these different factors that makes people respond differently to stress. So this is a really complex topic. You've got someone's genetics, you've got things that are happening in their lives, and maybe there's a gene expression associated with that. How do you actually study something as complicated as this? Sure. So as I said, the DNA code is what we inherit from our parents. This does not change. But what does change throughout our lives is the activity of our genes. And these changes in gene activity can impact our health. So gene activity can go up and down in response to environmental factors called epigenetics, as I mentioned. Um, Now we can collect biological samples from people. So by looking at saliva or blood or a cheek swab, we can run these in the lab and we can measure a person's gene activity across the entire genome at different time points and in response to different environmental factors. So really kind of getting a map of a person's entire life and different risk and protective factors that happen to them um, will explain gene activity changes and how this affects our mental and our physical health. And so when you're taking these swabs, they, they're showing a different map at different points in time, are they? Yes. So when we take a swab, we run it on a microarray and a microarray measures over 850,000 sites in the genome. So this is across all all the genes, all the known human genes that we have. Um, And all of us have the same genes, essentially, but the activity can differ. So, for instance, before and after breakfast or before and after exercise or before and after stress exposure, activity of genes changes and this can be measured in real time using these microarrays in the lab. So you found quite an interesting way of controlling for checking someone before and after stress exposures. You looked at students who were studying to be paramedics and you looked at them at the beginning of their course and then after they would have had to go out with the ambulance and presumably be exposed to a stressful situation. Yes. So most of the research so far has looked at biological outcomes of stress at a single time point. And this is quite problematic due to many reasons. When we look at a single time point, we cannot distinguish what are the causes and what are the consequences of stress exposure. And the focus has really been on the negative impacts of stress. So a lot of my research has looked at post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, etc. But a lot of us remain resilient and some people experience post-traumatic growth after experiencing stress. So our study looks at biological and health outcomes before and after exposure to stress among paramedical students. 
This is really important because by using such a method, we can identify which of the genes are altered as a result of exposure to stress. And we can also understand what are the social and the psychological factors that drive these changes. Right. So you can't change your DNA, but you can change some of these environmental factors. What factors did you find were the most protective? So our research has demonstrated that certain uh, social and psychological factors are highly beneficial and act as a buffer. And these reduce some of the negative outcomes of stress on our genes. For example, individuals who have experienced higher levels of social support and those who have a strong sense of connectedness and belongingness, this could be to a group, a team or an organization. These individuals cope much better with stress than those who remain socially isolated. So you've got your social connections, that sort of makes sense, but you're saying that having a sense of identity or as part of a group, even if you're not physically with them, is also protective. Yes, absolutely. So being part of a group, being part of an organisation is is some form of identity, as you mentioned, and also empowerment. So that itself gives you some kind of a team or an organisational or community support. And this is very beneficial psychologically and what we see biologically as well. So we've seen lots of people exposed to stress and trauma this past year during COVID, probably, well, it's it's been right up there for many people as like one of the most stressful years of their lives. And we've been yeah. physically isolated from each other. So what can you talk about the implications of your research in a pandemic time? Sure. So, so uh, of course, um, the findings of social um, support and the findings of connectedness and belongingness is particularly relevant in current times. Um, with the COVID-19 and the lockdown, it's affected everyone. What we are seeing more often is that people who have strong social networks and communities around them are coping much better than those who are not. And this is really exciting because it just shows that we can change our own lifestyle factors And by doing so, we can drive our own mental health in a particular direction. So if we're seeing the pathways within the body and there's a genetic sort of link there, is it also Mm -hmm. that there could be drug treatments for these sorts of things? Um, It is still in its early stages. Um, However, there have been um, some trials um, looking at um, so-called epigenetic targets of drugs Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, it's it's still in its early stages. Still, um, as I said, epigenetics is dynamic, which means by very simple um, changes to our lifestyle. So small things such as diet, changes in, a di- in our diet, changes in exercise, um, changes in social, uh, social circumstances and social support itself can also cause similar changes that we see when we look at drug-induced epigenetic changes. Obviously, if people are struggling with mental health, they should seek professional help for it. But mm-hmm. is, as a sort of broad brushstrokes advice to people as to how to protect their mental health as much as they can from within their own power, what's your advice based on your research? Um, like I said, so coming from the genetics perspective, um, you know, genes are something that we're born with, um, but the gene activity changes um, and we can change this by changing small things in our life. Um, And as I said, social support, connectedness in in our study seems to be two major uh, driving factors of these changes. Um, In addition, we've also seen previously that exercise is highly beneficial and um, individuals who've got a post-traumatic stress disorder and exercise regularly um, also have a very important um, buffering effect uh, of the negative aspects of stress. 
So these are the simple um, lifestyle factors that we can incorporate in our daily lives. Social connection and exercise. Divya, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you very much, Segan. Associate Professor Divya Mehta is the head of the Stress Genomics Group at the Centre for Genomics and Personalised Health at Queensland University of Technology. Like so many things over the past year, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected pregnancy care with a big shift to telehealth. And a recent report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has found that there was a 10% decrease in face-to-face antenatal services last year compared to the previous year. And some experts are worried that this shift to telehealth and appointments that might have slipped through the cracks during this time could see an increase in the rate of stillbirths. Six babies are born, stillborn, are stillborn in Australia each day. It's a rate that hasn't changed in 20 years. Professor Vicky Flannerty, who's running a global study into COVID and stillbirth, says many of these are preventable. So we've examined in detail the factors contributing to stillbirth and we know that maternal factors such as smoking, maternal overweight, advanced maternal age are characteristics that contribute to stillbirth. Some of them are very hard to change, particularly maternal age, but there are other factors such as care factors, you know, within uh, routine antenatal care that we've identified that we need to improve our care to pick up those women are at increased risk and monitor them more closely, but also to talk to women about the risks of stillbirth so they can actually reduce their own risk. And what you're saying in your recent research is that this face-to-face appointment system that we've had in the past, people haven't had access to that during COVID and you're not sure yet what the outcomes are. You're absolutely right. We're not sure what the outcomes are of this shift from less face-to-face to telehealth. Obviously, it's really important to have face-to-face contact with a woman to be able to see how the baby's growing and to really have that good communication and know that if she's anxious about anything at all, such as decreased fetal movement, she can get to see someone quickly. So we're concerned that, one, the anxiety that women might perceive around dangers of contracting COVID might stop them from attending regular appointments or contacting the health provider if they're concerned. We're also concerned that there may be this disruption or this change in antenatal care to more telehealth may not pick up those women who are at increased risk as well. And there's also this anxiety women feel. And anxiety that's prolonged is also linked to adverse pregnancy outcomes. So being anxious is not a good thing for a woman during her pregnancy. So we're concerned on a number of levels. One of the things you're worried about specifically is about reducing the risk of stillbirth. We know that for most of last year, there was a shadow of pandemic hanging over our healthcare Mm. system. Mm. Have you seen an increase in stillbirth in 2020? We have not, but we haven't really looked closely yet. Stillbirth is a tragic event, but in terms of statistics and numbers and looking at trends, it's a rare event. It's about seven per thousand births. Seven of those per thousand will be a stillborn baby. So to be able to really look at trends, we need big numbers. Our national data collection is a couple of years behind. So to be able to get the numbers we need to really look at the data, we're not quite there yet. Although I do know that individual states and territories are looking at their own data now. And I suppose there's no real indication yet, but it may be too soon to say. But also the fact that it may not impact overall numbers, but there may be subgroups within the population 
and usually the most vulnerable, that when these sorts of things happen like the pandemic, they are hit worse than others. We know in Australia that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, women living in rural and remote Australia, and migrant and refugee women have up to double the risk of stillbirth. Double um, the risk. Yeah, up to. And it's a multitude of reasons, but they are the facts. So this vulnerable group may be affected more adversely during restrictions to services such as in the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, that is another concern. Right. So that it might not be self-evident in the raw numbers, but that could be mm. under the radar. Absolutely. One of the other things that you've been looking at is anxiety. Can mm. you talk to what you've seen in terms of a trend over the past year and what kind of impacts you think that that might have? So we're conducting a large-scale survey. It's actually a global survey across 14 countries, including Australia, asking women and their partners about their experience through this COVID period and particularly gaining data on anxiety levels. And just the preliminary data that we have now shows that about 65% of the women completing these surveys are experiencing anxiety disorders, so levels of anxiety that would be really labelled as an anxiety disorder. So that's quite a high proportion. So it's preliminary data, but we can see from these data that it has had an impact on women's anxiety. So what is that flow-on effect? And we're yet to find that out. Yeah, we don't want people to be anxious for their own mental health, but I wonder what we know so far about the impacts of anxiety on the health of a pregnancy or the antenatal period. Anxiety is a contributor to adverse pregnancy outcome. I don't think we've got the good data on stillbirth in terms of the link between anxiety and stillbirth, but it's plausible that the anxiety levels, if they're profound and sustained, that may even affect the function of the placenta and the nutrition to the baby. So that's at the very extreme end. So it's possible that this anxiety might be increasing adverse outcomes. So one of the things you were concerned about was that face-to-face antenatal services have dropped. Does telehealth need to be better or do you really want to see people just getting back into face-to-face appointments again? I think telehealth is a bit of an unknown in this setting. I mean, we've had to do it. There was no choice. But I think telehealth needs to be evaluated in this setting because obviously there might be future pandemics. There are instances where telehealth has to happen when women are, you know, can't access face-to-face services. So it would be great to see a thorough evaluation of telehealth services. But I think what we really want is for women to be able to have their face-to-face consultations with their healthcare provider as a routine, but also certainly when they're concerned, to come in and actually see their healthcare provider. Professor Vicky Flannerty is the Director of the Centre of Research Excellence in Stillbirth at MITRE Research at the University of Queensland. And for decades now, we've been hearing that stem cells are set to revolutionise the way we treat problems in the brain, like Parkinson's disease or stroke damage or traumatic brain injuries, but that promise is yet to be fulfilled. Part of the problem is that although it's relatively easy to put stem cells in the body, it's hard to get them to do what we want them to do once they're there. Kiara Bruggerman is a nanotechnology engineer who's working on solving this. She's developing squishy gel-like scaffolding on a nanoscale that gives stem cells the clues they need to become functioning brain cells. And she's here on The Health Report. Welcome, Kiara. Hi, thank you for having me. Kiara, how are stem cells like lazy teenagers? 
Yeah. Well, basically, it's because they're they're so full of potential. They could do anything they want. But when you just leave them to their own devices, they're kind of lazy. <laughs> they need a supportive and encouraging environment to be able to thrive and a little bit of a poke in the right direction to go down the right pathway and become brain cells specifically. Right. And so the substances that you're engineering are this environment. What are they? What do they look like? So on to us, they, they look a lot like hair gel. They're just kind of a goopy material. But to the cells, when we get down into the nanoscale, they look like a vast network of entangled little nanofibers. So they're very, very thin fibers that are very, very long. And they all wrap around each other in this complicated network, a lot like a tangled box of Christmas lights. Um, but the space in between is all watery fluid, so they can still move around and they can pass nutrients and things around that environment, but with a bit of structure. So a bit like a really nightmare version of a building scaffolding, except good, supportive, not actually a nightmare. Just no right, right angles. So, and so I'm, presumably a stem cell could become any kind of cell. What specifically is there about this scaffolding that tells it to become a brain cell? Yeah. So we've, we've over the years, as you said, learned a lot about stem cells. So we know a lot of the different things that they interpret from their environment. So some of those things are biological cues, the sort of stuff you would expect. There are certain molecules that are found in brain tissue that aren't found in heart tissue. Um, also, shape has a really big role to play. So brain cells in particular, they really like to reach out over gaps. They, their little neuron-y fingers love to try to cross a gap and grab onto something. Whereas something like muscle cells, they really like grooves. So if you're designing for brain cells, you need the network to have a lot of fibers, a lot of touch points, kind of like a, a little bouncing obstacle course that all of the little brain cells can try to reach out from one step to the next step to the next step because they love to make those connections. So obviously the research that you're doing now is in very early stages. It's not in human brains yet. What is it that that drew you to brain cells? Is it because they are easy to work with or because they are hard to work with? Ah, So I think brain cells are a really good fit for this type, this approach to medicine. So tissue engineering or regenerative medicine, where you're looking at building these supportive environments in which for stem cells to prosper because brain cells really lack the ability to heal on their own. So your brain tissue doesn't heal very well. A lot of other body tissues do. There are other research groups who are focusing on this approach in cardiac tissue, in bone tissue, in all sorts of other tissues. Personally, I love brains because, I mean, it's a brain. It's just like, you know, if you're going to go for some organ, you got to go for the brain. Right. And so the sorts of things that you're, the therapies that your kind of end goal is are things like Parkinson's and stroke, as we said before. So that's about rebuilding brain that has been damaged. What sort of, uh, how do you achieve that? Um, so what you do is you, you create that environment. So we, we know with stroke, you're missing sort of a, a full region of your brain or a region of your brain has been damaged by the stroke. So we need to replace kind of all the cells there. There are certain neurodegenerative diseases that affect particular cell types. So with Parkinson's disease, it's the dopaminergic neurons. So the neurons that give you the dopamine you need in your brain. And what we do is we put stem cells into that environment and we put them in the environment 
with this supportive structure. So it's like building scaffolding. It's a very biomedically optimized building scaffolding material that's got all of the biological cues, all the chemical cues, all the physical cues, all the sort of shape factors that we know brain tissue has, healthy brain tissue has, and we try to engineer as many of them as possible into this nanomaterial to try to trick the stem cells into thinking they're in brain tissue and essentially peer pressuring them into becoming new brain cells themselves before they realize that we were lying and they weren't actually in healthy brain tissue. (laughs) And so what stage is your research at now? and Where are you sort of seeing it in a couple of years' time, briefly? So I I would love to see this research make its way through clinical trials. I will always be the mad scientist working on the materials development in the lab. So don't worry, your brains are safe from me. But we generally say about 10 years from working on a material in the lab to potentially being used in clinic. Some of our earlier materials are currently in talks for human trials. And the stuff that we've been developing lately, the really quite fine-tuned stuff is still very much at the early stages, very much working on potentially testing with, with cells and with animals before going on to humans. All the best with it, Kiara. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. Dr. Kiara Bruggeman is a nanotechnology engineer in the School of Engineering at the Australian National University. She's one of ABC Science's top five researchers this year, and we've been thrilled to have her for the residency over the past two weeks. And so now it's time for our mailbag section. And of course, you can ask us your questions by emailing healthreport at abc.net.au. And with me to help answer some questions tonight is our health reporter, Lauren Roberts. Lauren, I never realised that something that looks like hair gel could be telling stem cells what to do. No, the, the more you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's time for our mailbag section, which is a podcast extra for all those of you who are still listening loyally to the podcast. And you can, of course, ask us your questions by emailing healthreport at abc.net.au. Lauren's going to help me answer some questions today. And dozens of you have been asking about how will I know when it's my turn for the COVID-19 vaccine? And Lauren, you've got the juice. Yes, I do. So if you're in phase 1A, which is the phase that we're currently in now, you'll probably find out through your employer or the government will get in touch with you. So that's how you're going to know that it's your turn. The next phase, which is phase 1B, starts at the end of March. And we don't have an exact date about when that starts yet. And we still don't really know how you're going to find out. But we do know the government has spent about $31 million on a public awareness campaign. And a lot of people who are in these later groups are going to be finding out there how we are going to know when it's our turn for the jab. But we do know that if you go online and you do your eligibility tracker questionnaire, which is on the Australian government website, um, eventually that's probably going to have a service that'll let you register your interest and you might be able to receive an alert like a SMS or an email when it's your turn to have the vaccine. So for now, there's not a lot you can do unless you're in that first phase besides wait, listen, and uh, hopefully more information will come out before phase 1B starts at the end of March. Right, because it has been a bit light on information so far. And I suppose phase 1A is pretty small, but um, you're saying that we'll probably get some more direct messaging closer to the time. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but I know that phase 1A, there's about 1.4 million doses of the COVID vaccines to go out. Phase 1B, which is the next phase, there's about 14 point something million doses to go out. So when you're thinking about the upgrade that's going to happen in those phases, that's 10 times the vaccine rollout that'll be 
in the next phase. So there's like logistically, there's a lot that they've got to figure out. And the government is probably just handling that logistics side of things before they do start um, telling people exactly how they're going to find out when they're going to get the vaccine. Absolutely. Uh, now, I've got a question from Carl. So oh, yes. Between lockdowns, Christmas and New Year, and then kind of forgetting to pull back, I've been wanting to cut down on drinking, but I've kind of lost touch with what's healthy. What kind of advice would we give our friend Carl here? <laughs> so, I mean, healthy drinking, there's the Australian Healthy Drinking Guidelines, which have been updated in the past year or so, but they're roughly the same as what they were before. So these were updated in December last year, and basically they're saying 10 standard drinks a week. Is going to is like no more than ten standard drinks a week, and no more than four standard drinks on any one day. And I think most people kind of know that. But the next step is that sort of going. Well, I'm an adult. Like, let me make my own choices. Let me live my own life. And what is a healthy level of drinking? And there's been lots of researchers that have looked at these sorts of things. And um, a harm reduction expert that I spoke to a year or so ago, his sort of opening line is like, "Who's a problem drinker?" someone who drinks more than I do. And it really hits on that point of like, you normalise yourself. And so he recommends asking yourself some questions and just seeing how comfortable you feel with the answers that you that you give to yourself. So things like, have I ever had an argument with a partner or a parent because of my drinking? Have I ever been late for work because I drank heavily the night before? Have I ever driven my car when maybe I shouldn't have? Have I ever ended up in a relationship or ended up going home with someone I might have otherwise ended up with. And so if you're not really comfortable with your answers to those questions, then there's advice on how to sort of take control. And really uh, for someone like Carl or anyone else who's sort of feeling like this, the starting point is to have a clear idea of how much you actually do drink. So actually being honest with yourself about how much you drink, and then recognise what your cues are when you reach for a drink. And then if you know what's sort of prompting you, those environments that you find yourself in where you're like, oh, I really want to drink, then maybe start delaying that point where you go, well, I usually have a glass of wine when I'm cooking dinner, but I'm going to start waiting till after I've cooked dinner to start drinking. Because then if you push back the time you start drinking, then you maybe push the the number of drinks you have on a certain night a bit smaller and similarly not not having alcohol as part of every single happy sad celebratory commiserating milestone of your life and um, of course there is help for people who are worried about their drinking um, you can contact groups like Hello Sunday Morning or Alcoholics Anonymous or the National Drug Hotline. Uh, but yeah, so don't do it alone. But knowing your cues and knowing uh, just you know knowing yourself is is the right place to start. And so I've got a question for you, Lauren, from Mike, who says, "What <laughs> what's more dangerous, snakes or spiders?" Well, uh, this is a great question, um, but we've got a little bit of a, uh, a rogue answer to it. Um, so we know um, through some information that we've recently got through from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare that over 3,500 Australians are hospitalised in a, in a year um, due to contact with a venomous animal or plant. So this is research from 2017-18. The numbers might have been slightly different last year, but it's a great guide. And we know that spider bites account for about um, 19% of all venomous bite and sting-related hospitalisations. So it's about 666 cases, which means they are more dangerous than the venomous snakes, which were responsible oh. for. <laughs> they were responsible for 17% or 606 cases of hospitalisations. 
We always hear that like Australia's got all these deadly creatures and you think about snakes as being way more dangerous than spiders. But I'm, but I'm obviously wrong. Well, we know that brown snakes are, are up there in, in the dangerous snake bites, followed by black snakes and tiger snakes. Um, but do you want to take a guess at uh, what led the charge for uh, the most, uh, the, inflicting the most um, hospitalizations? Oh, it's not, we can't say humans is not an admissible answer. We're talking about non-human <laughs> creatures. Yeah, look, not, not in this particular one. Um, <laughs> not, not humans. Uh, have you got another guess? Um, no, just tell me. <laughs> Great. Well, it was the humble bee. Oh, oh, okay. That makes sense. That is an unexpected answer. So they were responsible for more than a quarter of all these hospitalizations. Um, and, uh, you know, it, really interestingly, um, the rate of hospitalizations um, was highest in the Northern Territory and lowest in the ACT. So um, th- that probably has a lot to do with the population of, of insects and things that sting around, but probably has a lot to do with the closeness to medical supplies as well. Right. So this is, okay. So Mike's question on snakes or spiders, uh, real plot twist there. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So like, you know, if if it's between snakes and spiders, it looks like spiders is going to win, but uh, beware the bee. Mm. And Tegan, last question for the day is one from Lizzie. Why would the virus need to mutate if it's been so successful with doing nothing, trying to kill it? Right. So it is an interesting question because, like, we know that we're talking about coronavirus, presumably, uh, that the virus has infected, like, millions and millions and millions of people worldwide. And so it's not that viruses are mutating on purpose. Like, they just mutate randomly. So every time a virus replicates, there's a chance that it could make a mistake in, in replicating its genetic material. And viruses are quite prone to doing this. Coronaviruses are actually better than say, flu viruses at proofreading themselves, but they still make mistakes. We all do. And so every now and again, you know, there's mutations happening all the time. Every now and again, one of those mutations gives the virus an advantage and so it gets passed on. And so those mutations kind of accumulate. And so a, a, a mutation that makes a virus more transmissible ends up being advantageous. So even though there hasn't been as much pressure on the virus, uh, although we have put pressures on it like um, social distancing. And so, yeah, a, a mutation that makes it more transmissible if we're social distancing gives the virus an additional advantage. But um, but interestingly, I think Lizzie also said in her message about uh, why does a virus need to kill its host is it's more in its own interest to keep the infected people alive so that it can pass itself on. That's absolutely right. And many viruses get less deadly over time because dead hosts can't transmit. So coronavirus is an interesting one because it's gone so far. It's had so many opportunities to mutate. And we, as long as it's still spreading, we're going to see um, more mutations popping up. But uh, yeah, some of the mutations are random, but then it ends up giving it an advantage if it can transmit more readily. And then in Lizzie's questions, he said nothing like a vaccine trying to kill it. I mean, vaccines don't actually kill the virus. It's actually your body that kills the virus. But what a vaccine does is train your body to know how to recognise it so that it can kill it. So I guess in a sense, they kill it over time. But anyway, that's all we've got in our mailbag for this evening. And remember, listeners, you can always email us healthreport at abc.net.au with your questions because we'll love answering them. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for letting me stick around. Anytime. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.